This is Hope FM. Well, I'm certainly wanting to find out who my next guest is. Uh, we hadn't met and we were introduced by uh, a mutual friend. Uh, so Norman joins me in the studio now. Good morning to you, Norman. And uh, your first time on the radio? That's right. Never been on the radio before. Well, so no. I'm, I'm looking forward because you've had a, such an incredible life, you know, as a, as a, as a, um, a, in fact, I was going to say a teacher, but you actually went, became a head teacher eventually. That's right. And then mm. you, you retrained, which took you into the, into the ministry for a, a time. And of course, uh, now you're very much in retirement, amongst many other things, uh, church life and so on. Uh, a real, uh, you've got a passion for country, country music, dancing. Dancing, uh, yeah, that's right. Which is great. Well, let's let's begin with how your whole faith journey began, Norman. How, how did faith begin for you? Yeah. Well, I was born in Cambridge, and uh, I had very elderly parents and a mentally handicapped sister. And uh, I hadn't. I'd got to the age of about five, and the, the girl from just down the road took me to Sunday school, uh, which was interesting and and I enjoyed it and moved on in that respect uh, until I became a teenager and then I became very involved in, in the life of the church really especially in the choir and in the music and in the acting and uh, generally being part of the youth activities really in that church and at this time I was I wouldn't be able to say that I'd I'd become a Christian. I was a churchgoer and not a Christian. And then, um, but my life was getting more and more filled up with music of various kinds. I've did, never, you, did you play a musical instrument? No, I didn't really play. A, I mean, I, I, I played the piano enough to know which notes were crotchets and which notes are quavers and things like that, but never actually played well enough to be a... a called a pianist for example but I moved when I was really quite early on into performing on the stage in various ways the youth club that I belonged to had a a Rocky Mountain group which was called Hank Garrison and his Rocky Mountain Revelers and I was part of that and and that was a tremendous help to me insofar as I felt much more confident in front of an audience because of that and because we were always performing the same songs to different audiences the the ability to con- connect with that audience uh, built up enormously and, and i suppose that also would have built your confidence that's well. right because it's quite something public performance isn't it yes yes and uh, it, wasn't, it turned out to be not a, a great problem to me in the long term. I think I offloaded my nerves quite early on, which was a great blessing to me in the, the life I lived. So when did the, when did the penny drop, the, 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 all the church going and, and everything that you were involved with, both in general church life and in, and in the youth club, when did the penny drop that actually all this business about there being a, a saviour uh, was actually true? Yeah, well... Um, I grew up in this congregational church in Cambridge and um, then came my time to go into the Air Force and I went off and um, in no time I found myself training for air crew as an air gunner 
in the Air Force. This was after the war, so I'm, I'm not a hero or anything like that, but I enjoyed doing that. But the thing I felt straight away was that I hadn't got a faith which was holding me in this situation. And that was uh, a bit of a problem. But what you did have was quite a bit of head knowledge. Yes, right. About that faith. That's right, yeah. And um, I have to say that I knocked about with uh, quite a lot of uh, wise people in, in Cambridge who were clever at everything, but particularly at, at explaining the Christian faith. And I picked up a lot of it, but I didn't feel that I had taken it on board into my heart at that stage. And that became more and more evident as I got into the Air Force and the challenges that being away from home and being away from those things that hold you together took place. I enjoyed being in the Air Force and I enjoyed flying enormously. I was allowed to be flying in B-29s, which were uh, quite an excitement for a young man to be in these uh, uh, rather elaborate American aircraft, which were being unmothballed at the time. And the time came for me to come out. I only had to do two years. And uh, although I was um, desirous of staying in, I decided to come out. And almost at once, I walked into a chap one Sunday morning after church who said he was going off to train to be a teacher. So I decided I would go as well. And I did. And this was a place called Borough Road in, in, in London. And uh, I enjoyed that enormously. And I hadn't been there very long when I became aware that there were men, young men, in the college who knew Jesus in a way that I never had. And this made quite an impression. And as time went by, I became more aware of this and started to go to some of the Christian meetings at college. And this, we got to 1954. And in 1954, a gentleman called Billy Graham came to Haringey in London. And the Christians in the college arranged a coach party to go. And I went. And I can honestly say, looking back, I suppose now, that I heard that day at Haringey the gospel preached, the, the basic truth of Christianity preached for the first time. I had never heard it before, although I'd been going really to Sunday school and to church and other places from being a child and quite a young child at that. And I didn't actually go forward at Billy Graham. I thought, oh, I'm going to think this out a bit more. But clearly, the men in the college, the young men in college, were praying for me. And there was uh, a kind of outreach thing taking place in North Acton, in London, at a Brethren church. And they took me along to that. And um, the, the sermon was saying, what will you do with he who is, who is the Christ? Uh, it's Pilate's words to the to the, the crowd, really. 
and I knew that the time had come when I'd got to stop dilly-dallying and get on and commit myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a wonderful experience, and it really shook me up and turned me around, and I went on from that point. Well, your first uh, your first hymn is very appropriate to what you've just said, There's a Green Hill Far Away. Why that one? No one. Uh, I think it's it's one of those hymns which appeals to children, really. It's the sort of thing that children will sing because the thought of green hills and the picturesqueness of that um, uh, is appealing to children. But it also contains the gospel from beginning to end in a way that's really, I think, aimed at children insofar as it's very simple. Anybody could understand there is a green hill far away. The presence of God. The presence of God indeed. And that reflected in that lovely hymn, There's a Green Hill Far Away, sung there by the St. Michael's singers. Norman and I were just talking uh, offline about St. Michael the Belfry, where the the singers are based. And of course, that's a church right in the shadow of York Minster and very famous because the Reverend David Watson went. Actually, he went to close the church. (laughs) 
down and ended up there was renewal uh, and many people's lives were changed through uh, that tremendous work that he and his colleagues undertook there. Mm-hmm. Now, Cambridge must have been a, a marvellous place. I mean, the centre, I mean, we think of Cambridge, you think Oxford and Cambridge, the, the epitome of the seat of education and so on. So what a, what a place to train as a teacher. What, what was it like? Not as... The, the junior schools were in the main very ordinary. I had a daughter who instantly was brought to Christ in Cambridge by David Watson. Well, there you are. Funny. <laughs> when he, I think he was a curate at the Round Church in Cambridge. And so what was I talking about? Um, we were talking about the oh, schools. Yes, yeah. And I used to ask yeah. myself, she wanted to go into teaching, and I used to ask myself, what schools would I recommend to her to take? And I didn't have a very long list, to be honest. There seemed to be a lot of mediocre schools, I thought. But there were some extremely good ones, as you were rightly saying. And uh, the thing is, you're going to be lucky enough, as it were, uh, to be able to join one of those. Because to be in a good school is a wonderful experience. To be in a bad school is an awful experience. So if I I asked you, uh, Norman, to to sort of very briefly sum up, what, 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 what is a good school? What is what? A good school. A good school is a school in which there is a sense of security which releases a sense of love and care which goes both ways between you and the children. And always you can see it in certain teachers straight away. They walk into a classroom and, and there it is. They feel cared for, they feel secure and they can behave without showing off or looking for attention or any of those things and the feel of that sort of school or that sort of class I should say is wonderful to get it into a whole school is of course a great challenge to the head teacher and he's got to spread his sense of security his sense of care love maybe to his staff who then feel secure in that way that they can pass it on in amongst the children. Now, obviously, you became head teacher. Yes. And uh, was that very was that very different from sort of being in the ranks, as it were, to then suddenly being the captain of the ship? Yes, I think that's right. I think it's different. Lots of head teachers become head teachers because they're good with children. All at once, when you become a head, you have to be good with adults. And if you do that job well, everything else will fall into place around you. And um, I know I'm exaggerating a bit, but I'm making the point that if the head has got a good relationship with his staff, they will pass on that relationship to the children and the whole thing will thrive, really. Now, obviously, you're preparing young lives. Was it a junior school that you were teaching? Junior school. Junior school. Nevertheless, preparing young lives for the future that, that they would step in, they would step into, you know. What about f- the sharing of faith in those days? Because, I mean, obviously things have changed uh, over the years, and, and I guess you would still have taught a range of faith subjects and so on. But, but wh- how would you say, knowing what you know now, to what the way things were then, what's, what was the difference? 
Well, I, I think the the freedom you have to actually try and lead children to to Christ in the classroom is very limited, really. You can state what you believe Christianity to believe, be, and you should do, I think, if you're a Christian. But we must leave it there, I think, and look for the ways in which, as I've said just now, people will behave in respectful ways to each other, which is an active side of Christianity rather than the faith side of Christianity. Very often we find ourselves, for example, the origin of the species is often taught as fact in many schools, as opposed to a theory, which, of course, it was for Darwin and, and, and so on. So there has been quite, quite a shift, hasn't there? That, yes. That the balance, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think education needs to be a balance, doesn't it, so that young people can make their own decisions, you know, in life. But I think so oftentimes that teaching can be a little bit one-sided, can't it? I think that's right. I think, uh, and especially like you're saying, in, today, in today's world, where, I mean, I've been out of teaching for 30 years, roughly, but even when I was still in it, mark you, the last... Uh, eight years I was in it I was in a heavily multicultural school so we straight away had a different set of circumstances Yes, because you moved from Cambridge to Huddersfield was it? That's right, yes that's right, and that was a different picture altogether and one what I would do in, in, in assemblies what I would use quite often what I would call religious stories or religious songs but I would also use Christian messages and say, this is a Christian message. Then I would use a Hindu message and say, this is a Hindu story or message or whatever it is, or a Sikh message or a, a Muslim message, uh, so that you were actually de- declaring what you were doing. So there was no question of trying to uh, lead children up the garden path, which, of course, is inexcusable, I think. Well, of course, they, as you rightly say, the role of educators isn't to proselytise, particularly, you know, if you're in a... No. Were, you, were you in a church-based school or, or was no, it as a no. secular? But the first school I was head of, not the first school I was a, uh, a teacher in, in Cambridge, we did have a Christian uh, club that met after school. And um, now that's a different picture straight away. And you are leading these children towards Christianity as best you can. Really. Well, let's have another piece of music. Now, your next music, of course, uh, comes on the back of actually you finding faith and it's blessed yes. assurance. You, you, why, why that one? You introduce it. Oh, uh, th- this is blessed assurance, which is what I felt when I became a Christian, I felt that blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That was the way I felt about it, and um, I still feel about it, right through to this time.
<laughs> well, my very special guest today is Norman uh, Bonnet. We've talked about his life, uh, well, his his early days of faith in the in the in the RAF, uh, and then going into 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 college and going into teaching, where he became uh, a head teacher. But of course, things were to change when you were a mature a mature person. You decided to completely change direction, Norman. What what brought about that change? Well, I think, in fairness, um, whilst what you're saying is largely true, I think I'd never actually w- been able to cope with the fact that I wanted, deep down, or I felt that I was called to become the minister of a church. But I'd enjoyed teaching enormously, and I felt there was ways in which I could use my Christianity so clearly in in teaching. But... I came to the point where I thought, if I'm going to be the minister of a church, now that I'm just over 50, if I don't go now, I'll be an old, worn-out man. And that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Because I had a bit of a suspicion, which turned out to be true, that being the minister of a church was harder than being the, the headmaster of a school. And I think that was, turned out to be true. It was harder. And um, so I decided I was going to come out of of teaching and I went back to Cambridge where I'd come from, where there was a Bible college, (coughs) which I went to for a couple of years and then started looking round for a church to go to. And the one I went to uh, was in Essex, in a place called Nasing, very close to Harlow, which is much better known than Nasing. But it's more or less in walking distance of Harlow. So um, if you know where Harlow is, you'll know where Nazing is. And was, did, did you enjoy those years of training? Was it was it a two-year, one-year experience? Yes, I think I did. I enjoyed that. And it was a good exercise in re-examining what you believed and what you, what you uh, needed to build up in yourself, really. Uh, and the teachings of various shapes and sizes of the Christian faith, really. Now, you, you said that, that your experience of, of ministry was, was even more difficult than, than that of being a, 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 a head teacher. What, what were the things that you enjoyed most about being a full-time minister? And what, and what equally, on the other side of the things, were the, were the, the hardest things? Well, the hardest things, of course, is that you don't see them five days a week, your congregation, I mean. And um, you n- might not even see them once a week. I mean, depending on whether they come, come to, to church, church or on not. Sunday. Yes. And uh, by and large, um, they did come. They were fairly good attenders, I must say. What did I enjoy most about being the minister? <clears throat> well, I think I would quote, was it Archbishop Ramsey who said, the church exists for the benefit of those who don't come? And I think if you ask me what I enjoyed most, it was bringing this church, this church in Nazing, to a point where it became committed to reaching out to the area with the gospel of Christ. And the the church um, was harnessed in such a way that it, it never stopped having outreach activities of one kind or another. Some of them were very simple, 
like harvest suppers and things of that kind. The kind of place you could bring outsiders into and um, you had that opportunity during the evening to preach the gospel to, And gradually the church grew in size. While I was there, it trebled in size. And there were an awful lot done to the buildings and the, and the way in which the whole church responded to Christian ways and Christian activities just developed to that time. Now, of course, some people would maybe look to a minister as a one-man band, you know, you do it all. But, of course, the opposite is true, where we're really the, the, the minister and the leadership team are there to equip all of the members so that everybody collectively together, you know, yeah. build, builds the kingdom and builds the church. Was that something that was right at the heart of what you were trying to do? Well, it was a congregational church, and a congregational church exists in order that the congregation can be responsible in every possible way for what's going on in the church. And uh, gradually we we got that commitment in the church to uh, take responsibility for what the church was doing. One thing we did, uh, I hadn't been there very long, and one member of the diaconate said, you know, we spend an awful lot of time talking about money in diaconate meetings and then we talk about an awful lot in church meetings the whole congregation now surely we only need to do that once so we won't do it in the deacons meetings and if you don't talk about money in deacons meetings you've got to talk about something else if not it's a waste of time (laughs) meeting and so we talked about outreach and we talked about the spiritual temperature of the church and it was through that diaconate, which was a good diaconate, I have to say, um, that we plotted this this path in which we were declaring the gospel and people were coming to Christ. We were very fortunate because just as that time when we were beginning to get underway with that, Alpha came on the market. And we started, at, uh, in about three or four years, I did we did seven alpha uh, gatherings and they all produce some fruit and um, uh, and, th- and then we, we began to get involved in the Toronto Blessing and that uh, that changed the whole feel of the church the spirituality temperature of the church uh, now, was greatly improved through that I mean people would maybe think gosh a congregational church that was that was linked in some way to the Toronto blessing that, was that controversial no I think I think the church by that time was a very unite like you're saying just now a very united entity really and we were all singing from the same hymn book really and uh, I don't want to over over exaggerate how good everything was, but but we had a, a very good system of home groups going, and everybody except just two or three in the whole church belonged to something in which they met during the week as well as on Sunday, and that that developed the whole life of the church enormously and brought the people together in such a way that we really felt. All one body we, as the 
as mm. the, as the hymn goes. And I suppose also that the the great message of, of Toronto Blessing and many of the other sort of awakenings that had taken place sort of reminded uh, believers uh, that there is a power that. It resides in every one of us. Yes. So it's not really just down to us as human beings. It's about the power of God working through. It's almost like a rediscovery of what has already always been there. Yeah, exactly. I agree entirely. We, we need to open our hearts to that power, that presence, that inspiration, that leading can come into our hearts and both as individuals but as a church. Um, I guess that's the clever thing, really. That's the difficult thing, to feel that the church is moving, as I say, like all one body, really. Now, obviously, you have the privilege over quite a number of years of looking back and, uh, and both in your teaching career and, uh, and, and your church career and, uh, and, of course, what you're doing now because you're still very much involved with church life and we're going to talk a minute about your country dancing. Um, <laughs> but how do you feel about the way things are going spiritually? I mean, clearly these are challenging times with COVID-19 and, and, uh, and so on. But do you think that the temperature of the nation is hungry for God. I mean, as as you look back, look forward. What are you What are you thinking in terms of of the way things are spiritually? I don't think the I don't think the nation as a whole is aware of their need of God, and that's that's very worrying because it's very difficult for the church to feed off of the absence of a need. Um, I, I lead a home group. And um, we have a in there. We have somebody who's earned his living in his life by being a salesman, and he will say, it's, "The first thing is that the person you're trying to sell your product to has got to feel that they need it." And I think that there's an absence of that in Christianity at the moment. The, the people of Great Britain don't feel the need of it as a whole. Now, whether that's because the church is not doing enough to stimulate that sense that there is a need that is satisfied in Jesus Christ or not is is not the same question, but it's related. Of course, there's nothing new about the nation and and even the people of God, if you like, almost being distanced from God himself. And then, of course, times of refreshing come, times of revival and so on. Do you think we're, the nation is, is ripe for a move of God of that kind? My word, yes. We have enormous needs as as a country and you've only got to notice what's going on in Parliament and in the, 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 the leadership situations of the country where it's terribly difficult to find a way forward, it seems to me. We, we seem to be going backwards and forwards so much of the time. And we've had good examples of that only this last few days. But we need God. Well, of course, I couldn't let you go, Norman. And thank you so much for being my guest through this hour. It's been, it's been wonderful. But, uh, but I know that uh, there's another part of you which loves dancing, and particularly country dancing. Yes. Uh, so w- whenever, whenever I was told that you were, you were an enjoyer, a teacher, an encourager of, of, of dancing, you know, I, I thought of the, the line dancing and wearing. But it's not, it's not just about that, is it? You know, the, um, 
the, the square dancing, I think, that people called it. How, how would you define country dancing? <laughs> what a good question. <laughs> yes, that's a difficult one, really, because it, it shows itself, like you've already said, really, in all kinds of different styles, aspects, styles and aspects. But country dancing seems to me to be something that's born of the people, really, and, and that's absolutely essential, that, that people um, develop the, the moves, whatever the moves are that they want, and somebody comes along and produces the music to go with it. And, of course, that's passed on then from generation to generation, and, and the country dance group that I belong to is inheritors of that 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 uh, tremendous wealth mm. of, of country dancers. Well, you probably don't know that today is National Fitness Day, and I guess that one one of the things that <laughs> dancing does uh, it, it keeps us fit and, and, and alert. But of course, also spiritually speaking, because it brings people together, doesn't it? In, yes. in, in, in a social way, but oftentimes when people come together socially, they 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 come together as human beings and talk about the things that matter to them. Yes, that's right. Yes. During this uh, lockdown, I've been trying to ring my... I'm the chairman of this particular uh, country dance group, and I've been trying to ring them once a month, and uh, that exactly what you're saying has been heightened by that amazingly, insofar as the contact is made between me and them, and I'm sure... They, they feel that they, they are part of this group in a deeper way than they might otherwise have done, which is a bit of a miracle, bearing in mind that they haven't been able to, to meet. Well, Norman, thank you so much again for being my guest. And your final piece of music is, is a, a great hymn. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you introduce it. Well, uh, this is, um, we know it as being How Great Thou Art. And, and uh, f- the first time I... I heard this song. It was being sung by a Welshman who, who, of course, sang How Great Thou Art. And ever since, I find it ever so difficult to say it without uh, putting that Welsh bit into it. And I hear it often being sung on radio, on television, and almost always I can see that bit of Welshness uh, tucked away inside there. But it's a song which really lifts me towards God. And I think uh, it's, it's musically so stirring and so lifting. And the words, of course, uh, cover the whole of the Christian experience because they tell us that the, ch- wor- the, the, the world is a beautiful place and yet God himself gave his son in order that we might come back to him. What a wonderful message that is. All inside this hymn, and like all three of the hymns we've had this morning, they all speak in much the same ways that this is the whole gospel, the gospel that Christ died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God.
Well, of course, uh, that wonderful hymn chosen by Norman, uh, How Great Thou Art, played there by the All Souls Orchestra.